Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with author Daniel Everett. During our conversation, Dan talks about becoming a Christian missionary as a young adult, living with the Piraha tribe in the Amazon in an attempt to convert them to Christianity, and how his experiences with the Piraha moved him to atheism and a reevaluation of his beliefs and his life. All right, Dan. Well, first of all, I wanted to just say thank you for taking time to uh, come on the show. It's it's really good to have you on here, and uh, welcome to the exchange. Thanks very much. It's good to talk to you, and good to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, as I mentioned before, we uh, sort of began the, the a formal interview. I, I read your book a few years ago. I've recommended it to a ton of my friends. It's one of my favorite books I've read over the past few years. Um, and I'm fairly uh, familiar, obviously, with the details of, of your life story. And I know you have explained this many times in an interview. But for, for people that have not uh, read the book or aren't particularly um, familiar with your story, um, I'm wondering if you can just maybe give a, a brief synopsis of um, your life beginning around the age of 18. I know I think you were a musician when you were younger um, and shortly thereafter met the woman who would become your wife and, and met her family who would have a profound influence on, on you and your life trajectory. Um, what did happen to you around the age of 18 and, and how, how did you end up in, in the Amazonian jungle? Uh, well, when I was uh, uh, 17, 18 uh, in high school, um, I met uh, a family of missionaries that were just back from Brazil. Actually, I met them by um, met their daughter by standing in front of a Jimi Hendrix concert, begging money to get in in San Diego in 1968. And uh, uh, this cute young woman came up with her boyfriend, and I got money off of them. But I recognized that she went to my high school, so. Uh, the next day in high school, I went and sat by her, and um, it worked out pretty well. Uh, we got uh, we we started talking a lot about uh, life, and she had been raised in Brazil in the Amazon jungle, and uh, I was in the U.S. for high school. And I got I had been interested in the jungle and an adventure like that for a while, um, but uh, had sort of put it on the back burner and was more interested in music. But as we talked um, and I met her family, then I eventually uh, converted to Christianity, um, born-again Christian, and we started uh, talking more seriously about our relationship and marriage and going to the Amazon as missionaries. So we got married at 18, and by the time we were uh, 26, we were in the jungle in the Amazon uh, having completed my Bible school training at Moody Bible Institute and my uh, linguistics, basic linguistics training with the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which is a missionary organization. And uh, we, we were assigned to a group of people that uh, no one had successfully uh, been able to figure out how their language worked, the Pitaha people of the Amazon. And on December 10, 1977, um, I flew in there with another missionary for my first contact with the Pinaha and didn't speak a word in common with them, but uh, within a few months, my family was there with me, and, and we spent a total of about eight years living with the Pinaha. 
Was your conversion to Christianity something that came very naturally for you? As, as I understand it, you don't come up from a particularly religious family. How, how did that process work of you beginning to dedicate your life to Jesus? Well, I come from a fairly anti-religious family. My father was, uh, you know, just thought Christianity, well, religion in general was a pretty silly uh, way to, you know, spend your time. But uh, so it wasn't all that easy. But I was very attracted to um, the my my uh, uh, future wife's family because they had been mis- they were still missionaries, and her father was an extremely charismatic and respectful person. And the thing that won me over more than anything else was uh, his complete uh, his his ability to listen and show respect and make you feel good about yourself. Uh, and the same time, the fact that he had chosen to raise his family in the Amazon jungle because he actually believed what he told me. These were things I had never encountered before, this level of commitment to any kind of ideology. So uh, they were all like that. Everyone in the family was that committed, and, and it was a very loving family, something else that I had not seen much of growing up. Uh, so it was it was a very attractive experience to me, and... Uh, I don't do things halfway, so when I became a Christian, I was a, uh, you know, preach from a soapbox on the uh, street corner kind of Christian for quite a while. And and your knowledge of the Piraha before you, you went there, I, I know one of the words in the book that, that you use to describe them is recalcitrant, um, that they had been previously resistant to outside influences. What did you know about that culture and that community prior to going in, and what were the goals that you had in, in moving moving in with them? Well, I knew only that other missionaries had been unsuccessful. I was not the particularly, uh, well, I, I didn't do my homework. I didn't read much about them. I looked at the language notes that had been done, taken by other missionaries. I didn't realize the Pinaha had been contacted since the 1700s and had rejected all missionaries. Uh, and all efforts. Uh, had I known that, it still wouldn't have influenced me because I had faith and I felt that I would be different, uh, which, of course, I wasn't. But um, uh, I, I knew only that uh, they had a language that wasn't related to any other language. Um, but I was told by the missionary who I was replacing that uh, that they were an extremely nice and kind uh, people, and uh, that was absolutely accurate. And the people that had gone before you, as I understand it, you were the first person to really become truly fluent in their language. Had other people come close to your eventual understanding of their language or not necessarily? Well, there's, there are two things there. I mean, you can speak a language without knowing much about its grammar. I mean, most people who speak English don't really care that much to understand the details of English grammar. and They know how to use it but they wouldn't know how to describe it or explain it to somebody else, perhaps. Mm. Uh, so so the first team that went there uh, in 19, roughly 1959, um, the uh, missionary learned to speak the male, the, the husband, uh, learned to speak the language reasonably, reasonably well. The people tell me he spoke it fairly well. I mean, I met him many, many years later, so he had forgotten a lot of it. Uh, the, the person who replaced him, um, the one that I uh, then came in, uh, that person went in in 1967, Steve Sheldon, 
And he actually learned to speak the language relatively well. In fact, Steve and I still maintain contact. And if we talk on the phone or we see each other in person, we try to speak Tita Ha to one another. Um, and that's nice because we know that no one else in the world outside the Amazon is going to know what we're talking about. Um, but uh, he never, by his own admission, he never really figured out how the language worked. He tried very hard. He had a master's degree in linguistics. But, um, you know, he told me, um, overly modestly, but he told me to uh, ignore everything he had written. He said, you shouldn't read anything I've written because I'm pretty sure it's all wrong. You should figure it out on your own. Um, it turns out that it wasn't all wrong, but we, we had very different perspectives, and a lot of it was incomplete. Uh, and so uh, I, I think it was good advice. I've now read everything he's ever written, and I know what I agree with and what I don't. Um, but it was a struggle. It was, uh, you know, working very hard. I remember after I had been there for only a couple of months, I was already speaking some of the language, and a Brazilian river trader who came up um, asked the Pinaha in, in a sort of pidgin language that they speak with traders, um, how did he learn your language? I've been coming here for all these years, and I don't speak any of it. And the Pinaha said, uh, well, he just uh, sits on his rear end all day, and then he stands up speaking the language. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, there's a story in the book of, about, if, if I remember correctly, of you going in there and literally beginning – from from nothing and and picking up objects off the ground like a stick and listening to them identify that object and uh, and beginning to establish some form of, of vocabulary in the Piraha language. What was that process like for you to begin to learn step by step the the basic fundamental vocabulary of the Piraha people? Well, it's a, it's a method that uh, was developed. Uh, I mean, lots of linguists have used it over the years, uh, but it was developed and is most associated with my first linguistics teacher, Kenneth Pike. Pike was a professor at the University of Michigan, but a dedicated Christian missionary as well. He spent one year at Michigan, one year as a missionary, every year for, you know, almost 30 years. And he did that. Now, the first time I ever saw it done, he did it in front of a class. He did, someone came in. And he started from nothing, and by the end of the class, he was uh, tell he could explain to you a lot about the language. And I actually do that now from time to time. A couple of years ago at the Linguistic Society of America, I was filmed, and you can see it on the Internet. If you look up Dan Everett Monolingual Demonstration, you can actually see me uh, in front of about uh, four or 500 linguists showing them how to learn a language with no language in common. Um, but with the Pinaha, it was it was real. And but I got off the plane. I was airsick. I, I never did enjoy those small Cessnas. I don't today, even though both my sons-in-law are pilots. I don't fly with them. Hmm. Um, but I got off the plane, and the Pinaha were around, and I just started working. I started, you know, pointing to sticks and dropping sticks, and and asking, you know, um, just pointing at things and making it clear I wanted the name for it, and. The amazing thing about human beings, anywhere I've ever done field research, and I've done field research in over a dozen languages besides the Pitaha, people seem to understand that you're trying to learn their language. And they don't, you know, if you point to a rabbit, they'll tell you the name rabbit. They won't say, that word is too hard for you right now, come back later. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? They could say something like that. But by and large, people are eager to help you learn their language anywhere mm. in the world that I've been. Mm. Uh, and the Pitaha certainly were that way. 
And the Pirahov people, for, from what you knew beforehand and what you know now, um, as I understand it, they're in northwestern Brazil. That's, that's the, the part of, of the country where, where they exist. How many Piraha are there now, were there then when you got there? What, what did you know about them um, prior, prior to actually going to that part of the world? I had been told that there were about 110 Piraha and that they were scattered all up and down 300 uh, miles of windy river called the Mycie River a tributary of a tributary of a tributary of the Amazon. Um, so it was very isolated. When I got there, um, I had no boat. I flew in with a plane, got out, and I'm just isolated there until the plane comes back. Um, and so I, for the first couple of years, I only saw, uh, until we got uh, a boat, I only saw one village. And then I started going to other villages, but the boat was really slow, and the villages were so far apart, these small little villages, that it could take almost two days to get from one to the other in my small boat. Uh, by canoe, it would have taken 10 days to get between the farthest apart villages. Um, so I, I just built up a knowledge of community, and then after a while, we moved to another village, and after that, we moved to another village. And eventually, I mean, now if I go back, and I think there are about 800 Pinaha now, mm. um, the, I, I, every Pinaha knows me. I'm sort of like a, <laughs> a legend there, even if they haven't seen me. But there was a, for a long time, there wasn't a single Pinaha that I hadn't known for almost their entire life. Mm. Um, and when I do get there now, and the young children come out to see this, this old white man uh, who's speaking their language, they, their, their mouths just drop open. <laughs> and when you came in initially, I know that your, your three children with your first, your first wife spent a significant part of their childhoods in, with the Piraha. Did you come in with them immediately? Is that who you came in with first, or, or did you come in alone and then shortly thereafter they joined you? The first visit was just myself and another uh, male missionary who had visited the Piraha before. And then the next time I went, uh, I only spent 10 days, and, and the government asked all missionaries to leave the villages. Mm. But I was able to go back a few months later, and I took my entire family. Um, and the missionary who we were replacing actually was able to go in with us. And he got out of the plane. Uh, he was on the ground for about an hour. And uh, he said, you might want to know these phrases. It just means speak Pinaha to me. And, uh, and what is that? And so he just quickly said, what is that is, and uh, only speak Pinaha to me is, I, I had no idea what he said. I had no ability to read. There, there was too much information. But he got back on the plane and left. But I was there with my family. My son was uh, nine months old. My middle daughter was three years old. And my oldest daughter was uh, six years old. And from from a missionary perspective, were there metrics or goals or timelines that had been set for you when you first got there, or was the the mission simply spend as much time as you need with these people and and convert their hearts to Jesus? Um, there were there were assignments. There weren't necessarily timelines. There were sort of targets. It was expected that you would spend pretty much the rest of your life there. That you would uh, never have any other life but that life and that uh, you would do what it took to see a church planted, started, and uh, completely run 
by the people, for the people, in their own language, with scriptures in their own language. So my job was to first figure out how the language worked, develop a writing system, teach them how to read and write their own language, translate the New Testament into their language, teach them how to use that, and then uh, let it go from there. And I, I know there are so many fascinating details that you talk about in the book about the Piraha people and, and how men and women interact, their long-term partnerships, short-term partnerships, uh, how they raise their children. Are there still some to you that stick out as being particularly fascinating, uh, especially in coming back to America and, and looking at the way we live versus the way that they live? Are, are, there, are there things that that they do that still on a daily basis come to mind in that contrast the way that we think about and live our lives here in the U.S.? Yeah, I would. the Pinaha have affected me profoundly for the rest of my life. And uh, no matter what it is that I'm doing, uh, I think about them frequently, you know. Um, I, I live out in the country in Massachusetts, and uh, the trees all around me, and, and I often think about, you know, how the Pitaha would be out there uh, looking for food, making fires, uh, building little shelters. But the main thing is not the technology. The main thing is the condition of their spirit. And what's always attracted me to the Pitaha and many other indigenous peoples that I've had the privilege to work with is their contentment. Um, you know, to be a hunter-gatherer like the Pitaha takes it, it takes about 15 hours a week to make a living. Mm -hmm. uh, they could spend more, they could spend less, and then most of the time they have food, they have what they need. They sit around talking and laughing and playing with their children and and uh, telling stories and uh, very satisfied. And when I when they see how I spend my life, you know, even when I'm in the village, I'm I'm working all day, not manually, which they could understand better, but um, sitting at my desk trying to figure things out, asking them questions. It's entertaining for them, um, but it, they just inspire me with their focus on, you know, their relationships and the here and now and enjoying life as it happens and not always thinking about what they want to do tomorrow. In fact, almost never thinking about what they want to do tomorrow. Hmm. <clears throat> and this may be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but was that a difficult adjustment for you, that influence of, of from, from their perspective? I think you, you said in the book that they worked roughly four hours a day, and, and separate from that, they had what they needed and didn't necessarily have to work anymore. I think there was a story in the book I think you, you told about how uh, you had brought some people in to teach them how to build canoes or boats or, or a, you know, from our perspective, a superior technology for them. And that they weren't interested in that, that that wasn't something that they uh, wanted to spend time on and that they had their way of living and that's the way that they were going to do it. Has it been difficult for you to, to get back into American culture where people work a lot to uh, uh, get caught up in the American way of life or not particularly? Well, I mean, I was raised in American culture. So from that perspective, you know, I am an American. So when I come back into a into the states when uh, I, I can adapt, I'm, I'm fine as an American. But on the other hand, I see that the priorities are different. You know, uh, the Pitaha cannot understand why anybody um, would give so much time per week. Um, you know, like they go to when they've been with me to the city. You know, and they see people have they don't consider homes that particular nice. I could take them into a mansion or into a shack; they wouldn't even notice. 
they would notice the difference, you know, in, in the colors and the materials and stuff, but it just wouldn't be a status thing to them. They couldn't give, they couldn't care less what kind of home you live in. They, you know, I remember the first time I took them into to a house in the city, um, they had a television sitting on a stand, and the peanut hunt just sat on the television, just climbed up on the stand and sat on the television. <laughs> and, and the people said, oh, get down, get down. And he said, oh, you know, it's like this is just another object. You know, that doesn't mean anything to them. Um, and the idea that you would spend your whole time in closed in offices and, and doing the kinds of things that we do to acquire uh, goods and money and services, they, they just, these are just not priorities for them. They can't comprehend why you would, you would do that. Hmm. And back to your story and, and the, the trajectory that your life took while you were there and, and the, the, the way in which, and I know you, you speak to this in other interviews that you've done, that you went into, uh, into the Piraha culture to try to change them, and in, in the end, they ended up changing you. Um, I would love for you to speak a little bit, if you can, about um, the, the, the long process, it sounds like, that that took place within you about um, your religious views and how your experience with them uh, began to change your thoughts about religion and about Jesus and, and God. Um, talk to that, talk to that point a little bit. And when did that begin? How did that uh, come about? And, and what was the end result for you? Well, there were two real sources of uh, that, that, Two, two phenomena that caused me to question my faith tremendously. First was their contentment, and second was their focus on evidence. Um, so I translated uh, a genealogy from the Gospel of Luke. You know, I was translating the Gospel of Luke, and I read out all these names. Um, and the Pitaha don't talk about people unless they know them. And they assume that if you're telling them about people, that you know them. And so they would ask me, well, who is this guy, and who is this guy? And when I made it clear that I didn't know who any of these people were myself, it was just a mystery to them that I would think it would be important to tell them about people I didn't even know, um, not personally. And when I talked to them about Jesus, they would ask me, you know, what does Jesus look like? Is he brown like us, or is he white like you? Is he tall? Is he short? What, what is Jesus like? And I said, well, I've, I've never seen him. And uh, they asked me who I knew that had seen him, and since I knew nobody who had seen him, not physically, uh, people claim to have visions, but for the Pinaha, that doesn't uh, really count. Um, so um, they just found the whole thing a puzzle. So first of all, it was making me question my own evidence for the assertions that I was making. Uh, the second thing was that the purpose of Christianity was to give people peace and relieve them from fear and to give them contentment and confident in their future that they would be in heaven well the future meant nothing to the pitaha they were not at all worried about that they didn't fear death because uh, you know every creature dies that's just part of life they didn't fear it at all um and uh, they were content and happy in fact much more content and happy than most christians i knew and uh, my children love them and they love my children and um it just the 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 reasons, the motivations that had taken me there as a missionary, uh, believing that they would be fearful of spirits. Well, they didn't even believe in spirits, uh, not like we understand spirits. They didn't believe in uh, hell, Not they didn't believe in heaven, just live life to the fullest, and then one day you will die. And uh, they seemed to be about the, have about the healthiest perspective of any people I'd ever known or read about. Uh, um, 
and this challenged my faith uh, tremendously. Um, and it began a long process um, of me doubting uh, my reasons for going there, me beginning to think that it was me who was superstitious and not them, that uh, I was the one who was believing incredible tales uh, without first-hand physical evidence, um, and an evidence that they would never talk about anything if they didn't have that kind of evidence for. So these things really uh, challenged me and eventually led me to uh, say to myself and then eventually to the world that uh, I, I just don't believe this stuff anymore. Hmm. And that, the process, the, the time difference between when you had come to that conclusion internally and, and, and when you actually spoke to your family and, and to, uh, to other people outside of yourself about it, w was that almost immediately or did that, did, did that take some time? Well, that took many years. Um, you know, I think that I was, had come to some internal conclusions that I didn't even voice to myself probably in the early 80s, but I didn't tell anyone until about the year 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, I, uh, when Christians, when, when most believers of any faith struggle with their faith, the answer is to pray for more faith. And so I first figured I was uh, taking my eye off the ball, that I wasn't being a good Christian, so I would pray about it. And then uh, there was another constraint, which is that an unbelieving missionary is an unemployed missionary. <laughs> um, this was my job. This is how I supported my family. And I loved living in the jungle. And if I were to come out and tell the churches, I, I actually don't believe this stuff anymore, well, they, they certainly wouldn't want to support me. Mm. Um, and so I kept trying to deal with it myself. I wouldn't admit to myself. And then um, eventually I did. And I left uh, missionary work to become a full-time uh, uh, faculty member. I started with the University of Pittsburgh and uh, then the University of Manchester and Illinois State. And now I'm at Bentley University as a dean. Mm. Uh, but this was a different career path, and it was one that was required because if you lose your faith, for whatever reasons, uh, your missionary career is over. Mm. And, and I know that, that that decision outside of just professional security came with some enormous personal cost to you. Um, if you're comfortable speaking about it, I, I would love to know uh, the result of, of what happened in, in your personal life once you told your, specifically your wife and your family, how that impacted your relationship with them. Well, um, it, it, you know, my wife, my children, uh, and all the um, literally dozens and dozens of people who had been giving to help us uh, through churches and uh, do our work in, in Brazil um, were alienated, you know, because to say you don't believe uh, if you're a Christian evangelical is not just a matter of, oh, I actually, I don't think there's enough evidence for this, so I'm not going to believe it anymore. It's a sign of sin and unfaithfulness and problems in your life. So it's really difficult for people to believe that you would just stop believing because of the evidence. Um, so, you know, my wife uh, was, was not at all happy, and we're divorced now, and that's largely the reason. And, uh, my children, uh, with the turmoil between their mother and their father, and with my lack of faith, uh, didn't speak to me for about two years. I can say now that we're all, uh, actually my middle daughter always uh, did speak to me. She was the one who continued uh, speaking to me. But after all that time, we're, we're great friends again now. My son is uh, 
is once again uh, the person I probably talk to most out besides my uh, wife, Linda, um, and my daughters. I talk to them regularly. And uh, uh, But it was a very hard period of time. It was a time that while I was going through this, uh, you know, theological uh, belief crisis, I was going through intellectual issues of different kinds and and I also was having this these severe family problems. So it was a very unhappy period of time for me, but it was one that I didn't feel I could hold this in anymore. And has your ex-wife and, and your children, have they, are they still of the belief, or at least some of them still of the belief that you, know, you, you have been persuaded by the devil and that's the reason why you've lost your faith? Or, or have they come to um, a, a more respectful or a different view of, of your current views on, the, on those matters? Well, I think that they all have come to a very respectful view. Uh, my two daughters are strong believers. My son is not. He is actually an anthropologist now, a professor of anthropology at the University of Miami. Um, and and uh, so he, he, he's not a believer anymore either. But my two daughters are. But they all have very respectful views of my own views. And, and um, you know, my daughters, uh, when I talked to them, I said, you know, Whatever happens to me in the afterlife is is not your concern. You, you've you've been you are wonderful daughters. There's nothing you could do. It's just my responsibility. If it turns out that I'm wrong, and there is a God, you don't pay the price. I do. So, hmm. so you shouldn't worry about it. Hmm. And when after you had you spoke out publicly about the fact that you had lost your faith. Um, how difficult was it for you to, to find work or, or to begin schooling again? What was Had you already figured out in your mind what you likely would do once the, the church started supporting you, or were you in a bit of a, you know, a free fall for, for quite some time afterwards? No, what happened was that uh, even from our first days in Brazil, because of the government uh, not wanting missionaries to go to the villages, uh, it happened just after we arrived, um, the missionary organization asked me to begin graduate studies in linguistics to uh, continue going to the tribe as a student of a Brazilian university. Mm. Uh, so I started um, almost simultaneously with the time we started working with the Pitaha. I was coming out of the village every few months and going down south to uh, the state of Sao Paulo to study grad to do graduate work in linguistics. So. Uh, by 1983, I was a Ph.D. in linguistics and was publishing a lot and still working as a missionary and then teaching part-time at a Brazilian university, uh, the same one where I had done my Ph.D., and it was helping me uh, go to the village to do research. Mm. Um, so to be, to be honest, I did research because mm. that's actually why I was getting permission to go there, and I, I also did missionary work. But uh, um, So then when uh, I decided that you know, I needed to look to a different kind of career. I was well-placed. I got hired because of my publications, because I already had a Ph.D., and I was very fortunate in that respect to have had uh, a really rewarding academic career that for some time was simultaneous with my missionary career, but then uh, post-missionary work I stayed as an academic. So so I was already working as an academic um, while I was a missionary. 
so, so that worked out very well for me. Mm, yeah. And I know, uh, just back to the Piraha, the, the stories about them are are often so funny and so interesting. And I, I remember you writing about the stories of them when, you know, when uh, Americans are generally just so so concerned with their possessions and when they get damaged, they get upset. And you, you were telling the story in, in your book about when a big rainstorm would come and blow their homes over, they would be laughing their, their butts off and just found it to be hilarious. And a, another story of that you told is uh, of children who uh, were picking up knives or sharp objects that uh, that were around the the, the Piraha uh, property and uh, the, the dropping dropping the knife and the mother handing it right back to the child so that they could play with it and and these are things that are almost unthinkable to to us or, or to parents um, in the U.S. I'm wondering what what in your view what can Americans or Western people or just people in the world learn from the Piraha um, given your experience with them to make our lives better to make us more sane to improve the quality of our own lives. I think the Piraha's greatest uh, key to success is a self confidence that each Piraha that I know, man, woman, and child has, that they can take care of themselves and their environment. A mm. Piraha doesn't worry about his home blowing over because he didn't put much effort to, into it anyway and he can build another one tomorrow. Uh, they don't worry about being hungry because he knows he can go out and get food. Um, and, and I think a lot of us are very insecure. We get trapped into careers. Uh, you know, we, we've got to work this much longer to get retirement. But, you know, Peter Hott would think, if I get retirement, fine. If I don't, I can do something else. I mean, they just don't get that worked up about having one path only for the future. Hmm. Um, um, in fact, not worrying about the future at all, just enjoying each day. Hmm. Um, and, and that seems to be the real source of contentment for them. And I find that myself, if I worry too much about the future or uh, what somebody going to say, you know, you you write a book of your experiences and then you worry what are people going to say about this book. Uh, you write uh, something about your understanding of anthropological or linguistic theory and you worry what are people going to say about this. Um, but the Pinaha's motto, if they had a motto, which they don't, would be, you know, do your best and things will happen or not happen. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And and that comes out of a deep self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And, and that self-confidence, do you attribute that to the way that they're reared or just the fact that they have to survive in the jungle on their own and so they develop a skill set that naturally brings about that self-confidence? Where, where do you think that, that confidence comes from? It's both. I mean, when you hand a child back a sharp knife, you're <laughs> saying to them, learn how to use this. And if you don't, you'll find out that you made a mistake pretty quickly. Um, and so for one thing, they're raised to be tough and hard. Being hard in the sense of being strong and tough is a Pidaha value for women and children. I saw a woman, and for men, I saw a woman stung by a, a wasp right in the face. Now, I get stung by wasps all the time, and they don't feel good. Hmm. And she got stung right in the face as we were talking, and she didn't lose a syllable, and she pulled the stinger out of her face. And I said, didn't that hurt? And she said, I'm not a baby. <laughs> uh, so, so just this toughness, and then acquiring a skill set. Yes, I mean, what do you need to survive? You need to, every and that skill set is not just skills. It's incredible knowledge of all the flora and fauna of the jungle. They know every tree. They know what it's good for. They know every animal. They know where it lives. What if you can eat it? When's the best time to find it? They just know everything about their environment, 
And they start learning this, and they have pretty much the skills to take care of themselves when they're 9 or 10 years old. So they don't leave home when they're 9 or 10, but um, you'll see little boys down on the banks of the river getting their own meals. Um, and little girls are playing house, so the girls will uh, uh, cook the meal. They eat the meal together and spend the day laughing and talking and swimming in the river. And if you're hungry, you, you get a fish. Um, mm. And so that confidence and that ability, those, those skills, I take my grandchildren, I've taken grand, my grandchildren to the Pinaha, and uh, my grandchildren love it there, but they're always falling and they're cutting themselves and they're loud, and they're, the Pinaha children just watch them like they're, you know, because they're so graceful and so quiet and mm. so rarely fall and hurt themselves because they've developed all these skills. Mm-hmm. And how how are the Piraha now? I, I I wonder since the time that you left them to to now is the culture essentially the same? Have they have they changed because of the way in which you know more Westerners are are familiar with them potentially now? What are how are the Piraha doing at this point? Well, um, about uh, eight years ago, um, the Brazilian government. Uh, through one particular person, decided that uh, it wanted to have a bigger presence with the Pinaha. So it um, it wanted to say that it was, uh, you know, some people who work for the Brazilian Indian Agency look at a, a group that's living traditionally and houses that blow over in the rainstorm and say, well, they're very poor. You haven't done anything to help them out of their poverty. But poverty is not even a concept for the Pinaha. So so it's not a problem to address. But the government comes in without anthropological training, without this idea that their traditional culture is, is just fine, and builds Western-style houses, puts in Western uh, generators, and instead of letting the people paddle the canoes, they uh, come in with uh, motors for all the canoes. Mm. And uh, so in the villages that the government is working in, the culture seems to have been totally changed. And uh, that is, coincides with the time that they haven't let me back in the villages with the controversy over um, the, the theoretical controversy over my research, but also because uh, uh, the government uh, wants to take over. They, you know, they, they don't like the idea that this group is well-known and that the only person who can talk to them is a gringo, mm. uh, me. Mm. But... Um, the government's perspective has not been to learn Pitaha. They don't have anybody who can speak Pitaha, but to take Pitaha children and teach them Portuguese. So mm. uh, the Pitaha are learning more Portuguese now um, than ever before, and there are Pitaha men who uh, apparently can speak Portuguese relatively just good enough to get by. Uh, you still couldn't carry on a full conversation with them, and part of the reason for that, that I talk about both in Don't Sleep There Are Snakes and in other articles that I've written, is that um, speaking another language requires adopting other values and talking about other values. Um, and uh, the Pinaha have very strong core values, so that they wouldn't um, ever learn another language fluently unless they were, in effect, abandoning some of their own values. Hmm. And and have they been receptive to the Western the new Western influence to into their culture or have they have they fought back? What's their perspective of uh, of of this new influence? Or maybe it's tough for you to know because you're not allowed back in there right now. Well, it's I, I'm not seeing firsthand. Although my former wife is living there all the time, hmm. um, so I do hear from her from time to time about how they're doing. 
but uh, and so when I see her films uh, and she sends me little video messages of the Pinaha talking to me, um, they don't seem to have changed that much. I do know that some people have left the villages where the government is and have gone to live more isolated because they don't want that influence. But uh, if if the government comes in and they're giving out free food, which they tend to do a lot, um, it's a big attractor to yeah. the area. Um, so um, you know, you see now, you where whereas many years ago, not a single pinaha had a cavity. I took in dentist, <laughs> a dentist to look at their teeth, and he he examined the tooth teeth of every single pinaha, and did not find a tooth with a cavity. And now in the villages where the government uh, is working only one or two, um, almost every child has cavities. Hmm. Interesting. The last question I want to ask you, Dan, is, is about how people can learn more about the Piraha. I know, obviously, the, the book may be the, me- the best way to do that, your book, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. Um, you had mentioned that there, there's a play that's coming out um, in London and, and also that there's a documentary, I believe, called The Grammar of Happiness. Um, for people yep. that, that hear this and are interested in learning more about uh, your experience there and, and about the Piraha people, how, what would you recommend for them? How, how can they learn more about, about these fascinating people? Well, the first thing I'd recommend would be the documentary. Well, the first thing would be Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, my book about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you've read that and you want to know more, uh, The Grammar of Happiness is a great documentary. In the U.S., it's uh, distributed by the Smithsonian Channel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then... Um, the play, uh, but I've I've also I'm I'm on the internet quite a lot giving talks about the Pinaha, um, and so you can Google me Dan Everett and the Pinaha, and you probably find quite a bit of stuff. Um, but uh, I would start with the uh, with the book. It, the book is, uh, is is somewhat autobiographical, but its focus is not on me, but on the Pinaha. It's that that was the intention anyway. Mm. Well, thank you, Dan, so much for coming on the show. It's really a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I really appreciate the time. Great. Wonderful to talk to you, too. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. Thank you.